Maayong buntag. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. Uh, that was so generous of you. Uh, anyway, as again, as what Mike have said, uh, my name is Dojo Aguilar. And uh, uh, so honored and uh, blessed to be here with you. I've been looking forward to this time to fellowship uh, with all of you. And, uh, you know, I get some information from Facebook or from Angelo in terms of, you know, the work that the Lord is doing here at Redeemer Bible Church. And uh, let me tell you, you know, my heart is always full of joy just uh, to see, you know, a, a, a growing, healthy church here in this part of uh, San Diego County. Because, uh, you know, that's always a rarity. I think that's a rarity now in this country. Uh, we see a lot of churches in every block, even where we live in Temecula and Murrieta, there's almost like, it's almost kind of a uh, church belt uh, in that part of a town. Uh, but again, it's very rare right now to find a church that's healthy, that really seeks to honor the authority of Scripture, and that's really um, uh, prioritizing discipleship and really reaching out to the lost. And so... Um, you know, I'm, I'm really, really encouraged with the work that you guys are doing here uh, for the Lord. And um, so today, as uh, Angelo was uh, asked me about a month ago to come here, and uh, again, I apologize because I was supposed to be here way back in July, uh, but we had a delay uh, with our flight, and that's why they call PAL plane always late. That's how they describe, you know, Philippine Airlines, but... Uh, it was a joy to, to be there uh, again this past summer. Uh, we've been there now for you know, the last few years and really focused on uh, equipping and training local pastors in the local church. And that's kind of really the heart of, of the ministry that I want to do back in the Philippines. And so today, um, I want to open up the word uh, for you uh, in the famous passage in Matthew, uh, which is chapter 5 of Matthew that talks about the Beatitudes. So if you want to open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. And if you can just uh, read with me along. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, starting from verse 3 to verse 16. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. 
a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, allow us this morning, Father, just to empty ourselves before you. Father, we live in a world, in a society that promotes self, that promotes man. But God, you have called us to a different purpose. Lord, as we learn your word from this wonderful passage that we commonly call the Sermon on the Mount, specifically this section that talks about the Beatitudes. Lord, teach us through your word, Father, to fully understand what is our real identity in this world. God, we know that every day we desire to please you, we desire to love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. So God, we ask you that by your spirit, continue to change our heart, Father, that will continue to long for you, that will continue, Father, to glorify you in everything that we do and say. God, do your mighty work in this church to the people that you've called to this church, O oh God that this church becomes a light to this dark and dying world, especially in this area in San Diego County, oh God. So Father, we just want to praise you. Father, fill my mind and heart, not of myself, but only of your spirit, that I may faithfully proclaim your word this morning, oh God. Father, we thank you, we praise you, and we give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So you might be wondering why I'm bringing this cup of Starbucks, right? Well, if you see this logo, do, does everyone recognize this logo? Who doesn't recognize this logo? Everybody, right? Even our little kids, right? So why do you think people recognize this logo? Anybody? What's that? Everywhere. It's everywhere, right? It's everywhere, okay? Do you see any other logo like this? No, right? Are they the best coffee? No. <laughs> but people are what? Attracted to it, right? They're not the best coffee, but people are attracted to it. They're everywhere. They've actually created a brand for themselves, right? Starbucks. So brothers and sisters, why do I bring this up? Even in a, in a secular company like Starbucks, just by seeing this logo attracts people because people know exactly what they bring, what they give. Unfortunately, with us as Christians, do we have the same kind of attraction to people? When people see us, do they see us as somebody that reflects the very identity of Jesus Christ? 
Are people attracted to us as Christians? In the same way that people would go and spend, they would stop for a, for a cup of Starbucks coffee. So this morning, brothers and sisters, I would like to challenge each one of you as we look at this passage in Matthew 5, which we know as the Beatitudes. Because basically, the Beatitudes is simply a teaching that Jesus has given to His disciples and to us and telling us this is what a Christian should be about. This is your identity as a Christian. So for us to understand this wonderful passage in, in the Gospel of Matthew, I want to give you a little bit of historical context uh, about this uh, passage because actually this uh, section in the book of Matthew actually started from the book of Isaiah in chapter 61. And we know the prophet Isaiah uh, you know, describes about the coming Messiah in chapters 41 and 42. And in chapters 52 and 53 of Isaiah, he, spoke, he speaks about the suffering servant who died on our behalf. But in chapter 61 of Isaiah, he actually talks about this great prophet that the Spirit of the God is upon him. And if I can read this uh, verse in Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3, it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planning of the Lord that He may be glorified. They will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations, and they will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Strangers will stand and pasture your flocks, and foreigners will be your farmers and your vineyards. But you'll be called the priests of the Lord. You'll be spoken at as ministers of our God, you will eat the wealth of nations, and in the riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will have a double portion, and instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. Therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land. Everlasting joy will be theirs. A lot of similarities, right? As a prophet Isaiah wrote this hundreds of years ago before the coming of Christ, he talked about the coming Messiah that would come and save humanity through His death and resurrection. So now in this section, brothers and sisters, as we know that this is the famous Sermon of the Mount, and in chapter 4, just before the end of chapter 4, the first few words that God spoke to, He said, Repent! For the kingdom of God is at hand. He clearly told the people there that the kingdom of God is at hand. And they need to repent of their sins. So he was telling the people there, come, it is only through me that you can have salvation. So we see at the beginning of chapter 5, he 
he went up to the mountains and spoke to his disciples and started teaching them about the Beatitudes. The Sermon on the Mount covers three chapters in the Gospel of Matthew, from chapter 5 to chapter 7. But nothing is as profound as this section at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. Many theologians and commentators say that this is probably the greatest teaching that God has ever given to His disciples. But sadly, this is also the most misunderstood passage in the Bible and also arguably the least obeyed passage in the Bible. The verses that I just read to you, brothers and sisters, is simply Jesus' own description of what He wanted His disciples to be and to do. If I may sum up in two words exactly what His teachings was, it is simply Christian counterculture. And what I mean by that is, if this section of passage, Jesus taught His disciples, this is what you're supposed to be. Is this what the world wants? No. Christians, what we do and what is demanded of us is totally counterculture to our society now. We live in a world where it's all about self, where it's all about self-glorification, self-promotion. It's about us. But in this section of passage, Jesus teaches us to be poor in spirit, to be meek, to be gentle, to be humble. Jesus tells us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus also tells us that we will be persecuted. So among you here still wants to follow Christ. I hope all of you will still persevere until the end. Because brothers and sisters, our world now is totally counterculture. And it, it, this is not a new phenomenon, right? Even 2,000 years ago, Jesus in, in, in all His ministry for three years did miracles, but yet people did not believe Him. People did not accept Him. So today, we will look and understand really what it means to live a beatitude life. If I want you to remember this morning that this passage simply talks about what it means to live a beatitude life. So again, starting from verse 3, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So here we actually see eight beatitudes that Jesus taught his disciples. I want you to know that these are not eight separate distinct groups of individuals or different kinds of Christians, but rather these are eight qualities or characteristics of a true child of God. This is how Christ defines a true disciple or child of God. 
These are to characterize all his followers that represents the very ideal nature of who Jesus Christ is. So now let's go over this one by one so that we can fully understand the context of this passage as he was teaching this beatitude. So in verse 3, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what do you mean by poor in spirit? In Greek, this statement, poor in spirit, denotes someone who is destitute, someone who is spiritually bankrupt, that can bring nothing to God. They are desperately in need of Christ. They recognize their lack of spiritual resource, and therefore, they are completely dependent on God. And brothers and sisters, many times we sing songs that says, God, you are the Lord of lords, that you are Lord of all, that you are the Lord of this universe. If God is who He is, that He is the Lord of lords, then does that live, leave anything for us? It doesn't, because if He is Lord of all, for Him to be Lord of all, then that leaves us with nothing. That we don't count anything for us. To be poor in spirit is to acknowledge our spiritual bankruptcy before God that because we are sinners under the holy wrath of God, deserving nothing but the eternal judgment of God. To be poor in spirit means we have nothing to offer, nothing to plead, nothing we can do to get to heaven. That should be the attitude and heart of every Christian. Even now, as we enjoy the grace of God by the salvation He brings us, the more that we should consider the grace of God as truly amazing. But sadly, most Christians have a very low view of God and a high view of ourselves. It's true. Why? Let's just examine our life. Are we in the Word every day? Are we serving in the local church? Are we making disciples? Are we reaching out to the lost? These are just but some of the, some of the commands that Scripture tells us. But is our heart inclined to obey that? If our heart is not inclined to reach out the lost then let me tell you, you have a low view of God. Because what is the heart of God? The heart of God is to seek and save that which is lost. And He humbled Himself even to the point of death on the cross. I mean, I love this song, Rock of Ages. You probably sing that song in this church. And that verse that says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul it to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. That is what a poor in spirit person is. Somebody that's spiritually bankrupt, that clings to the cross of Christ, 
alone. Even as that person is being sanctified, the more and more he continues to cling to the cross of Christ. And then Jesus said, Yours, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Does that rock your world, RBC? Right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That should rock your world. I mean, what, what a promise. That's actually a present promise now that we enjoy. But we know that that will fully be consummated when Christ comes back. But we know as Christians now, we experience the kingdom of God here in our church, in our community. As we live our life, we are partakers of every spiritual blessing that God the Father has given to His Son. That's why He tells His disciples, if you are that person who is dependent on Me, fully spiritually bankrupt, that depends on Me all the time, yours is the kingdom of heaven. We should rejoice in that, brothers and sisters, that we are partakers now of every spiritual blessing that is in Christ. And the only way, again, to receive the kingdom of God is really to acknowledge our spiritual poverty. So let me ask you, do you still have that heart of longing for God every day? Do, are you still clinging to that cross every single day? Or are there times that you let go of that cross and depend on yourself. The second beatitude in verse 4, Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, we generally regard people who mourn as, you know, weak people, right? Oh, they're weak, you know, they're emotionally imbalanced, they're, you know, they're, you know, they're just, you know, they just have an attitude. It's just like, we usually describe people who mourn as helpless people, people that need to be pitied, people that needs to be helped and comforted. But yet Jesus said, Blessed, happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And I believe that Jesus is not implying here in this text as those people that would suffer normal loss or suffered bereavement, right? Because even the Apostle Paul tells us Romans 12, 15, weep to those who weep, right? So if, 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 you have a, if you have a friend, a brother, or sister that just suffered a loss, you know, don't just say, oh, don't worry, you'll be comforted. No, I don't think that's the right attitude, right? That's why I, I believe in, in what Jesus meant this, is Jesus was referring more to a fundamental kind of mourning because generally we live in a world that has become insensitive or takes a lighthearted attitude towards the more serious problems, which is sin. We live not in a generation that, again, seeks personal gratification and pleasure. We live in a world that normally do not grieve and mourn over the evil and sin that exists in this world. And because the world does not grieve over sin, 
they continue in their acts of unrighteousness. Because an unbeliever cannot mourn over sin. Because they don't have a heart to do that. But for us Christians, this is what Jesus is telling us. Blessed are those of you who mourn, who grieve over sin. For they shall be comforted. Because we know that the comfort is only from our great shepherd. But sometimes even in our situation, when we have trials, when we have persecutions, do we run to God first? Or do we text and call somebody first? James even tells us that when we are having trials, when we lack wisdom, what does he say? Ask God. And sometimes when we have trials and sufferings, sometimes we pray for God to take away this trial, right? But have you ever thought, instead of praying to God to take away trials and sufferings in your life, that you pray to God for wisdom so that you will know exactly how to act or what to do amidst trials. In a way that you will be sanctified, that you will grow more and more amidst the trials. Only those who mourn and grieve over sin will be comforted by the only comfort which is offered freely by God's forgiveness to someone who is spiritually poor. And I believe that Jesus, as He was teaching this, there's a pattern that you can see. He started first with telling the disciples, you have to be spiritually impoverished. You have to be spiritually bankrupt. Now another ideal characteristic of a Christian is somebody who mourns and grieves over sin. And then the third beatitude in verse 5 said, Blessed are the what? The gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. And the Greek adjective for, for gentle, you know, in the original language means, you know, someone who is humble, someone who is meek, someone who is considerate. It is someone who exercises self-control by having a gentle spirit. And someone, again, gentleness is, is not a norm in our society now, right? We always look at people that are aggressive, that are proactive, that usually succeed in the workplace, right? I mean, we work with people that are, you know, I mean, we, 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 we see now two of our presidential candidates. Gentleness is, is not a virtue now that is even lived in this society. But yet, Jesus tells His disciples, Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, brothers and sisters, I want you to remember that gentleness doesn't necessarily mean weakness. But sometimes we, we actually look at that, right? A person who's like gentle or meek, like, wow, who, you know, what are you? Like, you know, you, you seem to be a very weak person. But Jesus Christ actually describes gentleness and meekness as a strength because you know what? This is a strength because it is accompanied with humility. Knowing that 
a disciple should be spiritually poor and has total dependence on God. And that is a strength that should characterize disciples. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones sums it up in his quote when he said, Meekness is essentially a true view of oneself, expressing itself in attitude and conduct with respect to others. The man who is truly meek is the one who is truly amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. This makes him gentle, humble, sensitive, and patient in all his dealings with others. And again, what a future promise that Jesus said, for they shall inherit the earth. Again, one, of what one would think about the opposite because we don't think about gentle and humble and considerate person to inherit, right? Or even have an inheritance. It's always those people that are aggressive, that are proactive, that gains wealth, that gains inher- sorry, inheritance. But Jesus said here, Blessed are the gentles, for, she, for they shall inherit the earth. The psalmist even said this wonderfully in Psalm 37, verses 10 to 11. And I quote, he said, Yet a little while and the wicked man will be no more, and you will look carefully for his place and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. It's the humble is the meek that will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. So the fourth beatitude which Jesus was telling his disciples is in verse 6. He said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Again, when we talk about righteousness, we talk about the righteousness of Christ. We talk about salvation. We talk about what God has done to us through Jesus Christ. But here I want you to look at closely in this text in how Jesus describes what a disciple should be. Someone who hunger and thirst for righteousness. If Jesus Christ is the embodiment of perfect righteousness, He's telling disciples that you should also ought to be someone who hungers and thirsts. Again, there's a metaphor that Jesus is using because that also ties up again to verse 3 when He said, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Right? If you are spiritually impoverished and spiritually bankrupt, you should, and this is actually an active verb that, that, that Jesus tells us this, this should be indicative of a Christian's life that you should be daily demonstrate hunger and thirst for righteousness. It simply means that a Christian should love what God loves and hate what Jesus Christ hates. Are you a people that desires the truth? Are you a people that desires and stands for what is right in the eyes of God? Are you a person that can easily compromise truth for the sake of personal promotion? Being right with God by trusting in Christ alone, you want to be righteous, you want to live righteous, you want to represent righteousness 
this lost and dying world. That is what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And Christ promised that they will be satisfied. Again, that's a future promise. But we know now that we can experience that kind of satisfaction that can only be found in Jesus Christ. And yet, the final consummation of this is in the time to come. True children of God can only be satisfied from the one who gives them His righteousness since our righteousness comes from God as a free gift, for He alone can satisfy us. I mean, Jesus Christ in the gospel describes Himself as what? The bread of life. He describes Himself as the living water. But He even says in those statements that, I'm the bread of life, He who comes to me shall not hunger. But yet, He's telling His disciples, hunger more. For the sake of righteousness, for the sake of who Jesus Christ is. That every facet of our life should be characterized by that insatiable hunger and longing for righteousness. Now brothers and sisters, do we stand upon the truth of this 66 books of Scripture alone? I pray that we never compromise, even if it costs us relationships, even if it costs us our job, even if, even if it costs us friendship. We have to stand and be hung, hungry and be thirsty for righteousness. And Jesus promised that we shall be satisfied. The fifth beatitude in verse 7 says, Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Jesus is simply telling disciples to show mercy to other people, for you have received mercy. Mercy is something that God doesn't do to us that we deserve, or doesn't give us that we deserve. Grace is something that God gives us that we don't deserve. So Jesus telling his disciples, Bless, show mercy, for you also have received mercy from me. And again, this is something that we should be doing every single day. Every areas of our life, we should demonstrate mercy. But mind you, never compromise truth for mercy. You should understand that that Jesus Christ is full of grace and full of truth in John 1.14. So as a Christian, we should also have that heart that we should be full of grace 100% and 100% full of truth. The moment we bend towards one, one or the other, if we're bent towards more truth and less grace, then we can be legalistic. And also the moment we bend towards grace, then we can also compromise truth. We can be truthful and be gracious at the same time. And we should also be gracious and uphold truth at the same time. Then the sixth beatitude, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's amazing. 
When we talk about purity, right? we talk about you know, how we've been cleansed as white as snow. We know that only Jesus Christ is perfect. It's amazing that Jesus was so specific when He said, Blessed are the pure in heart. Because you know what? What does the Bible speak about when He talks about the heart? He talks about you know, either our emotion is the seat of who we are. And the heart is not usually the place where we expect purity. The Bible says that clearly in Matthew 15, 19. He says, for out of the what? Heart come what? Evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. The heart is not a normal seat. Of purity. And that's why, brothers and sisters, I would like to encourage you when you are discipling one another, don't be very superficial. If there's issues going on, address the heart issue. Because lo and behold, most of the issues that Christians undergo is usually it's here. I always challenge even my, you know, men at the church. If they've been there for a year now and have called, you know, FBC home and they're still not serving, I just tell them, why? And go deeper. Is there really a, a, a heart issue behind it? And 99% there is. It's either it's sin, a sinful pattern. Because really, again, the Bible says that from out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts, false witness, slanders. And to be pure in heart is to be pure throughout, and this can only happen by the grace of God through the supernatural cleansing and forgiveness He gives to somebody who is spiritually poor. So here Christ has outlined all this, you know, the, the, the identity as a true child of God. And then he makes a promise, for they shall see God. Again, at present, you know, we may experience now the, 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 the presence of God as we are knowing Him through the Word, through our fellowship in the church. But we know that when that time comes, our faith becomes sight. Right? As a disciple who is pure in spirit, the promise of seeing God, I mean, Brothers and sisters, that should excite each one of us here. That should excite us. That Lord, I will finally see you, my Savior. I mean, John said this wonderfully in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, when he said, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. Brother, sister, just by that, by that promise, when Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Next, the peacemakers. We are never to seek conflict, but we are to actively pursue peace and to strive peace with all men. And then the eighth beatitude. He said, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Again, it's quite interesting that Christ should proceed from being peacemakers now to persecution. You know, from the work of reconciliation 
now to the experience of hostility. But we know, brothers and sisters, that this is so true. Because we are in this world, but we are not of the world. And Jesus Christ said, and Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12, he said, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be what? Will be persecuted. But remember that Jesus Christ made a conditional clause here that blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Because there's also other people there that are persecuted not for the sake of righteousness, but the sake of their disobedience. But we have to remember that the only persecution that's pleasing to God is when we are fighting for the sake of righteousness. A lot of false teachers out there. But are they standing for the sake of righteousness? And he says here, Blessed for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in verse 12, what does Jesus Christ want us to respond? He said, Be, be glad and rejoice. Wow. Are we usually joyful amidst persecution? No, that's not a natural response, right? We don't normally rejoice and, and, and be happy about it. But yet, Jesus Christ wants us to rejoice and be glad because there's a promise for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So again, the second point I want to share with you, brothers and sisters, is that inheritance, our inheritance as children of God, right, in verse 3 and verse 10, he starts off this beatitude by that wonderful promise, the blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And verse 10, he says, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We should rejoice in that, that everything we experience in this life, our spiritual poverty, persecution, when people say falsely against you, still rejoice, still cling to the cross because our inheritance is to come. And that should be enough motivation for each one of us to continue to live a life that identifies us with Christ. And lastly, brothers and sisters, in verses 13 to 16, point number three is our influence as children of God. And this is my prayer to this church in R at RBC. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it in their basket, but on the lampstand it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So really me, in these last three verses, as Jesus Christ was telling the disciples that there is what you who are as my disciples, that you are someone who is poor in spirit, who is gentle, who is humble, who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. That happy are you who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. And now he gives them the responsibility now. Because now you have identified yourself as my disciple. Now I'm telling you this. You are the salt of the earth. 
and the light of the world. And that's the influence that we Christians have in this lost and dying world. And again, I want you to, to notice the mood of this verb. When Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, He's not actually commanding us, but this is an indicative truth. This is a statement of fact. So it simply means that Jesus is telling His disciples and you and me now, you are salt, you are light. And that should be again a distinguishing mark of every Christian as a child of God. It's amazing, why, why, did, why did Jesus, why, why do you think Jesus used a metaphor using salt? Because at the time during the ancient world, you know, salt actually, you know, gives flavor and preserves. It usually actually, you know, arrests corruption of meat. It's a very ordinary thing. It's inexpensive. And we, without salt, it was easily, food was easily spoiled in the ancient world, right? Because they had no refrigerator. And so salt was, was very, very important. And we know also that, you know, food without salt really is tasteless, right? It's bland. But here, Jesus Christ is using a metaphor to tell us that we as the salt of the earth functions as a preservative, an enemy of decay against this world that is characterized by pollution, characterized by foulness, by rottenness, by pollution, by sin. So we, if we are to be the salt of the earth, how do you Christians like you and me bring flavor and preserve the world from being corrupted? How do we do that? by simply being different from this world. Because if something is the same as the object that is trying to influence, you don't really add anything, right? But we are the salt of the earth. We should be different from this world so that as we are influencing the world, then we become that flavoring, that that, that agent that will arrest corruption and decay. That's exactly what Jesus Christ is telling His disciples. You are the salt of the earth. And for us to add flavor, we have to be different from this world. Now let me ask you, have you been different? Do you act differently from this world? Kids, do you talk differently from your classmates? Or do you sometimes get, get dragged by what also they're doing? We have to be different, brothers and sisters, so that we can be salt of the earth. We should desire righteousness. We have to be different. But again, sad, sad to say, instead of the church influencing the world, the world is slowly influencing church. That's why we need you here, Redeemer Bible Church, to be a salt of the earth. We need you to be different than the world has to offer. And it requires all of you. So what Jesus tells His disciples, each one of you are the salt of the earth. And He said, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? Because normally, sodium chloride doesn't lose its taste, doesn't lose its saltiness. But we also know during that time, because they can just get salt from the Dead Sea, that's why His disciples get this. Because sometimes the salt that they get from the Dead Sea are impure. 
So it doesn't have that full capacity of flavor. So when you actually loses flavor, then he says, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything. In the Greek, it means you're useless. You're useless like a fool. That's why actually the, the, the original language talks about this. That's why as Christians, you are salt of the earth. Because if you're useless, then salt can be easily thrown out and trampled under the foot of men. So again, brothers and sisters, let me ask you, what kind of salt are you? Then Jesus concludes this in verse 14 to 16. He says, you are the light of the world. Again, the you here is very emphatic. It, it, Jesus put in emphasis about telling his disciples, you are salt, you are light. And we know that light is a great description of Jesus, right? In the Gospel of John, it talks about in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. John 9, 5 talks about, while I am the world, I am the light of the world. John 12 talks about, Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. And the fact that Jesus is telling his disciples that they are the light of the world, Jesus acknowledging also that because the world is in darkness, right? Because if the world is not in darkness, then what is the light for, right? It's the same thing also as we are going to a dark room. How can we go in a dark room when we don't have a light? The only purpose of the light is to illuminate a dark place. So when Jesus said, you are light of the world, it was pertaining to because all around you is darkness. Everyone who is not in Christ is darkness. Again, as a child of God, we are all sons of light and day, and we are not of darkness. First Thessalonians 5, 5 says, For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night or of darkness. Jesus is the light of the world, and because of our relationship with Christ, He enlightens you. We are no more than pointers to and reflectors of Jesus Christ. That is what every Christian should be. That we should be a reflection of that light, right? That when people see us in the community, in the workplace, in school, they almost recognize us like this cup of Starbucks. They'll see, man, there's something different in Mike. I want to know more about it. What, what, you know, this guy is just like, I just don't know. There's something different about him. I want, to, I want to know more. That is how we should be as Christians. But sometimes, when you focus a light to somebody, it could also be irritating, right? So if you focus that on the eye, it's like, wow, you know? People don't want to, they want to want to avoid the light. I hope we're not that kind of light. I hope we're the kind of light that illuminates. Okay? Remember like, you know, like when we're in a dark room, right? And sometimes we see like, especially early in the morning, it's like, wow, the, the, the room is clean. But the moment we open that window and the light comes in, what do we see? Dust. That's really the purpose of why we are lights in this world. Because we, 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 should, we should be lights that will expose sin so that we can preach the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. And as light, we should continually be plugged in to the true source of light, who is 
Jesus Christ. Again, brothers and sisters, we live in a world that loves darkness, that loves their sin. And now Jesus Christ tells his disciples that you are light. And just like a city set on a hill, it cannot be hidden. right? So as Christians also, because we're illuminating the very character of Christ, we should be out there giving light to this dark world. Or why would we, somebody put a lamp under the basket, but they should put it in a lampstand? And I love this metho- me- metaphor that Jesus Christ that gives light to all who are in the house. You know? I believe Jesus Christ is telling this in a, from a context of like, you know, in, in a house, in a, you know, as they were praying, as they were, you know, having, sharing the word, breaking bread, that, that you as the light really illuminates everybody in that house. And then he said in verse 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your fathers in heaven. That as we do good works, and even these good works are not of our own. It is prepared by God beforehand. That's in Ephesians 2.10. For we are His workmanship created in God for good works so that we will just walk in them. Let us not have that Pharisaic attitude that they were doing good works for what? For their own self-glorification. And this is exactly, brothers and sisters, the kind of light that Jesus wants us. That when they see us illuminating this dark and dying world, that they go past beyond our good works, but they actually see what? The true light, who is Jesus Christ. That is the purpose of you, RBC, here in Oceanside. That when they see RBC, they, don't, they just don't see the good work, but beyond that, they see the true source of light, who is Jesus Christ, so that they may give glory to the Father who is in heaven. So brothers and sisters, as we have learned this morning what it truly means to live a life of beatitude. Let us ask God to help us in these areas that we are weak. Let us, let us strive as we are working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Know that it is God who is at work in us. We have responsibility that we need to obey and do what Scripture commands us. But at the same time, we need to be totally dependent on the Spirit of God. Uh, so I love that you are studying that. This is one of my favorite books, J.A. Packer, that actually changed, radically changed my view on evangelism. Right in the same way. Because a lot of Christians have an attitude of let go, let God. Oh, it's, well, I'm saved by grace, so I, you know, I don't really need to pursue sanctification. No. As God is sovereign, we are also 100% responsible and uphold those truths equally, 100% all the time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the very example of your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, as we learn from the wonderful truth of your word, God, we are blessed to be called your children. That Father, in those truths, We know that we have the greater responsibility also, Father, that you have called us to be salt and light of this earth. Father, I pray that Redeemer Bible Church, Father, will be a salt and light to this community, Father. Use them mightily, Father, for your purpose and glory. 
Now may each one of us, Father, look always to the example of Jesus Christ so that in everything we do, Father, may it be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.